Welcome to the Eskenazi Health Here For You podcast, where we go beyond the doctor's office and take a closer look at the programs that Eskenazi Health has to offer both our patients and the communities that we serve. My name is Brian Van Bachlin with the Public Affairs Team. And joining us in studio today, Dr. Ben Wilson, Director of uh, Substance Use Disorders with Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center. Uh, ben is here to discuss mental health-related stigma, which is also the focus of the Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center's Virtual Education Speaker Series, which you're going to be participating on coming up here on April 14th. Uh, so I, I'm told I can't call you doctor. It's just Ben, right? <laughs> I prefer Ben. Okay, yeah. so Ben, thank you very much for joining. We'll jump into everything, but first, how about a little overview of you, how long you've been with Eskenazi, what your focus is. Please tell us more about you that I could ever come up with. Yeah, certainly. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, as you said, I am, I am the new director of substance use uh, disorders for Sandra Eskenazi. I joined Eskenazi in early January of this year, so I haven't been here long, um, but I'm loving it. Um, so previous to this, I have worked in community mental health for approximately six, seven years in, in, in a variety of different roles and uh, came here in early January. My educational background is I have a master's of science in clinical mental health counseling. I also have a PhD in counselor education and supervision. Um, I use that degree specifically to teach. So in addition to the the full-time position here at Sandra Eskenazi, I also teach part-time graduate um, level counseling students um, and have done so since 2017. Um, I also am a licensed mental health counselor, licensed clinical addictions counselor, and a national certified counselor. And I am also a person in long-term recovery from co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders. Okay. So I, Rachel was telling me when we were getting ready that there's a difference between substance abuse and substance use disorder. So it, it's really a, a clinical difference. Um, people use these words interchangeably, but to give you a little bit of background, so we use um, something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's kind of like our go-to book when when mental health professionals need to um, evaluate and diagnose. They kind of provide a criteria and the names of diagnoses. The previous edition, um, which was the DSM-4, identified people with addiction as either having substance abuse or substance dependence. They were separate. Substance abuse is not as severe as somebody with substance dependence. The DSM-5, which is the most recent version, I believe there's a text revision out now, but the DSM-5 did away with that. Now they look at substance use or substance abuse or whatever we want to call it, addiction in general, on a continuum. So there's no separation between abuse and dependence anymore. It's substance use disorder on a continuum of mild, moderate, or severe. So yeah, so I I guess so. Okay, so break it down. What constitutes mild, moderate, and severe? I mean, is I I don't want to downplay any of this stuff, but is someone with with mild? Is that just someone who's out partying on the weekends? And then it, well, that's a great question, and, and and that's where we could go on and on and yeah. on. But but clinically, really, how one determines whether it, it's it's mild, moderate, or severe is by the number of criteria that somebody meets. So. I believe there's 11 set criteria. If you meet two two or three of those criteria, I believe, at least two, you are diagnosed with a substance use disorder, mild. 
So somebody who has maybe three to five um, would be moderate. And somebody who meets six or more of those would be considered severe. Okay. Um, and, and also we're here to talk about the touchy subject of mental health and, and substance use and substance abuse uh, disorders play into the idea of mental health, but it's a really, it's, it's a touchy and taboo subject and it, it's, it's kind of gotten kicked up to the forefront a lot, especially in these last two years with COVID. Can you explain uh, what mental health related stigma might be? Yeah, um, mental health related stigma is in a broad sense a a process or an attribute in which social groups are devalued, rejected, even shamed based on a condition. In this sense, it would be a mental health condition, which also includes substance use disorder. Um, I describe it as a process because Stigma is strongly influenced by many different things, many factors, um, social, cultural, contextual um, value systems, and those can develop and change over time. Uh, Two main factors that affect the burden of of stigma really is, is whether or not one's perceived control over getting the the diagnosis or, or condition. So, so the perceived control over, one's ability to manage it, and one's perception towards um, somebody's developing it. So people with substance use disorders or people often view those with substance use disorders as, oh, they chose to engage in whatever it was, abusing or alcohol or drugs, so it's their fault. And then as a result of that, they also have this control over it. So it's ultimately... A decision. And so that's just not accurate. Now, you know, you could argue that somebody with that may have, you know, somebody with diabetes, you know, well, was it because they picked up and ate chocolate cake too much? Well, it's kind of just, it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's what mental health related stigma is. It's a process and it, it differs across different um, populations in different countries has to do with, you know, things that are passed down from generation, from generation, beliefs, things like that. I think that's, it's so weird because, you know, I mean, and anecdotally, this is me, I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on TV, but just for the sake of this very broad me saying words here, your two most important things are your heart, are your heart and your brain. You know, and, and we treat the heart, we treat every, we treat everything from like the chin down, basically. But if there's something, you're not allowed to have anything wrong with your head, which is where your personality is, your soul is, your everything that is everything, but that's supposed to be perfect or there's something fundamentally wrong or you have screwed up, which I just, which just isn't right, you know, and I, I mean... And I'm gonna I'm gonna go off topic because I I went nuts over the weekend and I binged dope sick on Hulu and they got into it and it's about the oxycotton stuff and if you haven't seen it, I thought it was fantastic but that's just me the way that that stuff it, it wasn't in a lot of those cases the finally it wasn't the people's fault they were prescribed they were given something that they were told was right and it was fundamentally changing them and then they can't be blamed for becoming addicted on but they were shunned and shamed and all of that. And it's just, it's just really too bad. And I'm really going off on a tangent right now. Well, that's okay. But you bring up some excellent points. Yeah. And, and I think it goes back to the fact that you're right. 
you know, over the past 50 years, we've made tremendous strides in medical advancements, in the treatments that we are able to provide, even the medications that we can give our patients now, whether it's for heart disease or cancer or mental health disorders or substance use disorders. There are life-saving FDA-approved medications that have been proven to be effective for individuals like me who have had a history of substance use disorder and mental health disorders, yet there's a stigma placed mm-hmm. on those medications. We don't judge people who take insulin or you know, a medication to control their hypertension, but there is a tendency to judge people who take medications for mental health disorders or for substance use disorders. So that's a much larger conversation, but you're right. Public perception has lagged far behind the medical advances that we have made in the past 50 years. Why is that? It's because of stigma. Yeah, and it, and it's, it's one of those things that's like, you say you're talking with someone and they're bringing up medication for mental health and, and, and all of that. And you have that notion of there's something wrong with me that you have to, like, I, what's it? I, and I don't know. It's and it's a tough pill to swallow. And then you you go back and forth on: Do I need this? Do I want? What's going to happen if someone finds out that I'm on this medication? Are they are they going to have to change the way they act around me? Are they going to think that I'm one wrong triggering comment away from going off and setting them back? And uh, so yeah. So in in it, I think it's and it's become that buzz phrase of it's okay to not be okay. It might be time for a new thing phrase because that's maybe almost becoming white noise at this point in time. But how, how does this stigma, when when you're talking with patients and you're discussing treatment options, how does it affect you know both patients, providers, uh, and what information has been found about mental health-related stigma? Until recently, much of the research that's been conducted um, on stigma, um, not just mental health related stigma, but stigma in general is really focused on documenting the magnitude of stigma, as well as understanding and identifying the effects of stigma. Um, you know, the stigma can cause a person's condition to worsen. Um, it, 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 and some have even argued that the stigma and the, uh, the consequences and the harmful effects of stigma can be almost as bad as the symptoms themselves of the condition. Um, and, and I may touch on that in a, in a personal example in a little bit. But now research, you know, research has historically documented that stigma is in fact a real thing, that it does have profound consequences across many levels of society. Um, and that Individuals who have stigmatized conditions such as mental health disorders, substance use disorders, often experience significant delays in accessing health care, like even primary health care, um, but also um, are delayed in entering into specialized treatment services. Um, and, and they end up having higher dropout rates even once they are engaged in, in, in specialized treatment services. Um, so I, I want to point out that many researchers – recently have shifted their attention or their focus away from what is stigma and what are the effects of stigma to how can we reduce stigma? So we've identified the problem. Now, thankfully, researchers are focused more on what is the solution? How do we fix the problem of stigma? We rally around people with 
physical ailments and 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 we should support and, and all of that but if someone comes out and says look I'm struggling with my with my head, we, there's that chorus of, well, just toughen up. We saw it with Simone Biles. We saw it with, um, uh, I can't, I can't think of her name right now, but the, the tennis player, the, the female tennis player was dropping out and like came back out on the court to just kind of say, look, you had this moment where she wanted to address this fan that was, or I use that term loosely, who was heckling her to say, you're, I'm, I'm down, you're, I'm exposing myself here. Please don't make fun of me, you know? I applaud anybody really who has the courage to stand up and say, hey, I have this problem. It doesn't define me. I'm a human being. There's nothing wrong with people who have anything, you know, any condition. And I, and I applaud people. We need more people to really bring this topic and raise awareness and express and communicate to others that, hey, I, I have this too. It's okay. And there are there are treatments, there are effective treatments, and people do and can recover from whatever it is, whether it's cancer, whether it's a mental health condition, and even a life-threatening severe substance use disorder. People can and do recover. In fact, not only is it possible, but it's probable if they're able to take the steps necessary, like admitting, accepting, and then going through the process of, of change, to, to address their issues or, or conditions. Um, as a person in long-term recovery myself, you know, when I first got sober close to 17 years ago, I remember telling, I remember being told, you need to let everybody know that you have an addiction and that you have a mental health. And I could not bring myself to acknowledge that or understand why. And, and so the point was, and I now know what he meant by this was, is that accountability is a huge part of most people's recovery. People can't recover if nobody knows and can hold them accountable. So accountability is key. So over, over the course of a year or so, I started to tell my family and my friends, and then I started telling my doctors, and I told my pharmacist, and then I saw how people began to listen. And then People didn't always ridicule me. And whether they were judging me or not, I kind of didn't care anymore. I just realized this is helping me. It's helping me maintain my sobriety. And I want to help others do the same. It's about saving lives. And so that's one of the reasons why 17 years later, I still reveal to anyone who asks or who wants to know, I always, always introduce myself as a person in, in long-term recovery. And, you know, that didn't just happen overnight. It took a lot of time and, and, and effort and yeah. some courage to do that. But that's one of the reasons why I do it is because we need more people to, to speak up and to bring awareness to this. So one of the things when we came in here, I was told that I absolutely could ask you about your personal and professional experiences with this. You already started, so I'm just going to keep pushing you towards that or nudging you towards that. Please, uh, how is... Uh, you know, this affected you personally and professionally. You mentioned, you know, long-term recovery. So please feel free to share your story. So, uh, yeah. So I've, I've personally experienced the harmful effects of having multiple stigmatized conditions. So I, I, I had a life-threatening substance use disorder as well as a mental health disorder. I struggled from depression and anxiety. In fact, that's how I ended up 
developing a substance use disorder. I went to get treatment for my depression and anxiety. And so, you know, for years, as a result of having the depression and the anxiety and, and, and later the substance use disorder, I, I tried to conceal it. I didn't want anybody to know. Why was that? Well, it's because I didn't want people to judge me. I didn't want people to think, oh, he's a bad person or he has no morals or look at what he's doing, you know. Um, and, and, and I was fearful. I was scared of what people would think, what they would say. I thought I wouldn't get a job later on in life. Um, and so I felt really alone. And, and eventually, I guess the good thing or the bad thing, depending on how you look at it, is, is because I kept it to myself, I never asked for help. So what happened? My disease progressed. My condition progressed to the point where it became obvious to others that I was struggling. It also became to the point where it was life-threatening. Um, you know, I, I explained earlier in our discussions, you know, the severity of the continuum of substance use disorders. By the time I got sober, I was living homeless on the streets. I was physiologically dependent. In other words, if I didn't have the substance, I would go into withdrawal. I could have seizures. And so in order to to live, I had to use the substances. And so going back to what I was sharing, you know, eventually when it came out that I was struggling, it was a relief in a sense, but it came at a cost as well. Because at that point in time, when I started engaging in treatment and um, I wanted services and I wanted to become motivated to get better, I encountered some unfortunate situations. Um, one being, I remember, um, uh, I remember experiencing severe debilitating um, withdrawal symptoms that included pain, anxiety, nausea, vomiting, and just general hopelessness, shame. So I went to the emergency department. And nothing against emergency mm -hmm. departments. Yeah. They do great work um, and save people's lives. But this one experience almost 20 years ago was horrifying to me. Um, I remember being told that I needed to suffer from one of the, my care providers. You just, like, just got to sweat it That's out? That's what they just, said. Or? They said I needed to suffer with the, with the idea or philosophy behind that, that if I didn't suffer pain and consequences, then I would never be motivated to not to, – to, I would never be motivated to get better or to stop using substances. That was one of the lowest levels, low, lowest points of my life. I still like start to have like turmoil and, and conflicting thoughts about it when I talk about it. It was so traumatic just because the hopelessness and despair that I had going into that environment and then being told this is your fault. We're not going to provide you compassionate care or medications to treat your symptoms really almost set me over over the cliff. Yeah, I would think telling someone that they have to suffer, like, no, no, I'm just going to go and make the suffering stop right now. I, like, you sure. know what I mean? And we, wouldn't, I, we wouldn't tell that to somebody no, with a medical no. condition, a true physical medical condition. Yeah. Why would we do that with people who have mental health yeah. disorders or substance use disorders? We, we try not to even make people suffer with kidney stones. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, Very but, good point. So uh, well, that's the, that's – that's shocking. I'm very sorry to hear that happen. <laughs> well, on the other hand, and I think it's also important to to share about the other side, mm -hmm. I would not be sitting here today having this conversation if it weren't for passionate, dedicated professionals, medical doctors, nurses, counselors, therapists, my family, who really, really put their heart and soul and effort into 
investing in my recovery and treatment because I wouldn't be alive today if, if I didn't have those experiences as well. So I want to make that point that, yeah, I, I've had some unfortunate experiences, but I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for just the life-saving medications and treatment that have been given to me. And I'm so grateful for that. You mentioned that it kind of all started with stress and depression, which then snowballed into... Uh, so what do you say to someone who maybe is going through... And it could even be just mild stress, mild depression. You just kind of said, look, I just need to ride this out. I think, I think the most important thing or the one thing that I would tell anyone and everyone is ask for help. Mm -hmm. If you don't ask for help, it's very difficult to overcome anything. And, and, and just because you have to ask for help or you want to ask for help or you need to ask for help means does not mean that, you know, you're a weak individual or that, that you have this or that. It just means you need help. We are all human beings. We all need help. I need help to this day staying sober. I cannot stay sober alone. And I've got almost 17 years, yet I rely on a lot of people to help me stay sober to this day. It goes back to accountability, responsibility, and, and, and taking, you know, personal accountability for, for your condition. Um, and so I think the key is, is always, always, always ask for help. There's always hope. And a lot of times people don't realize that they're afraid because the stigma and the mental health related stigma. So take the first step and ask for help. Tell somebody you're struggling, let them direct you, let the professionals advise you on what needs to be done next. It's okay. If you don't know how to get better or how to recover or what you need or what you don't need, that's okay. As long as you can say, Hey, I need help. That's all you need. It's been a fascinating conversation. I, I, I didn't need to keep us on track. We, sure. So we don't, but I, I, this is something that, yeah, we could talk about all day. So, but in the interest of what we're trying to accomplish here, so you are also um, speaking as part uh, on this topic as part of the Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center's Virtual Education Speaker Series. Say that 17 times fast. Uh, can you give us some more details about this? Because I think this has been a, like I want to attend your speak after this conversation. I I, I think people it, need to come and hear your story. I I know it's April fourteenth, but please tell us some more about this. Yeah, well, I you know, and and, and I welcome everyone, and, and and I hope it's helpful for people. The speaker series essentially is just a vehicle for for me to be able to provide some information, insight. Um, and education for, you know, professionals and, and even maybe patients in public, whoever wants to attend. Um, but I think, I, I think the purpose and the goal of, of talking about mental health related stigma is to share some, not only my personal experiences and journey to give hope and encourage others to do the same thing and ask for help, um, and to overcome these barriers and challenges. But I also want to, um, share and discuss some ways that have been proven or that research has shown um, to help reduce uh, mental health related stigma and, and possibly even over time eliminate it. Um, one way we can do that, and I'll talk about this uh, during the presentation, not so much today, is by changing the language that we use, um, the words. So, you know, I'll share an example. For years, I used to introduce myself as Hi, my name's Ben. I'm an addict alcoholic. 
Well, those terms, addict, alcoholic, are actually terms of endearment within the appropriate context. I never took offense to them, and many people don't. But then I started, when I was in my doctorate program, looking at some research for my dissertation, and I saw this research on stigma and changing the language that we use. And then I started shifting to, hi, my name's Ben. I'm a recovering addict alcoholic. And then as I started going through even more research and, and doing literature reviews, I learned what person-first language is. And person-first lang language is where we are identifying or putting the focus on the humanity of someone, the person, the individual, um, rather than the deficit or the condition first. So now, years later, I always try to introduce myself as, hi, my name's Ben. I am a person first in long-term recovery from co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders. So how can someone uh, attend the virtual speaker series? Is there a website, a, a registration, a link, any any of that stuff? Um, yes, I, I believe they can text uh, CEU to 317-597-8069 to RSVP. There's a web in, WebEx invite. You can also go to the um, Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center website for more information, or you can call 317-880-0000. Sounds good. And also all these resources, eskenazihealth.edu, you can go in there and find, find the links right there. Um, is there, is there, the answer to the question is yes, but is there anything we haven't touched on that you would like to make sure that we get in before we, we, we wrap things up here? Uh, it just just the fact that I think that this is something this is a topic that needs to continue to be explored and discussed and researched and if if this interests you um, or you know somebody who may be impacted by mental health related stigma or, or mental health disorders or substance use disorders, I encourage you to join and and engage in these conversations and discussions it's important so we we say if you need help get help you need help. so What's a, a concrete, tangible resource we can provide them right now? If you need to talk to someone, is there a phone number? Is yeah. there an email? Any of that stuff? Actually, the number I gave earlier, the 317-880-0000, you yeah. can call. Um, I believe that's the switchboard and, and tell them what you need and they will direct you. If you don't know what you need, that's okay too. Just say, I need help and we will figure it out. You can also, if there is an emergency or a crisis, always call 911. You can tell a police officer, you tell your family, tell a counselor, tell anybody. Just tell somebody and say, I need help, but don't be afraid. He's Dr. Ben Wilson, but don't call him doctor. Director of uh, Substance Use Disorders with Sandra Eskenazi Mental Health Center and also a person, a human being. It, it's been a an honor and a privilege to meet you. I would just, we, you walked in as our first introduction, but thank you so very much. It's really been a, a great chat, and I, I appreciate you taking some time to come and talk with us. About thank this. you so much for having me. No problem. So if you want to hear any of our episodes, uh, previous episodes of the Eskenazi Healthier for You podcast, find our SoundCloud account. You can also follow us on all the popular social media channels, Eskenazi EskenaziHealth.edu. Also, thanks to Joe and Rachel for getting this all set up. And again, thanks to uh, uh, Ben for coming by and taking part in this uh, conversation. And we'll be back with you on our next episode.